Well, today we make our way through 1 Corinthians to chapter 15, as Mark said, that climactic point of the book in some sense, that grand chapter of the resurrection. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians has these distinct chapters and sections on topics almost. It's like we're working through uh, a topical study of different Christian uh, uh, issues. And, of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is that great resurrection chapter. A chapter, by the way, that I've preached on multiple times. Um, one of our post-resurrection uh, series, as we've thought about the implications of the resurrection and so forth, was just on 1 Corinthians 15. So we did seven sermons or so on 1 Corinthians 15. So this time through, we're taking larger chunks, but it has been done in the past, and you can find that on the website. But Paul has just come off now a section of, of talks, sermons, mini sermons in his writing, if you will, on the body of Christ, on love, on the use of the gifts in the worship of God's people. And now he brings them back to a real theological problem uh, that they have within the congregation where apparently... There are those teaching that there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Now, you will know that the Greeks, you know, believed that the body was a dirty thing. The material world was a dirty thing. And the Greeks very much believed that, you know, in, with Plato and so forth, that the body goes into the ground and then the soul is liberated from the body. The body is a prison house, they said. Uh, it's holding, it's, it's containing the, the spiritual dimension of man that is really our essence. And this body has a limiting factor, of course, in so many ways. It has base needs, you know, we, we have to feed it. You know, we have to make sure it sleeps, you know, and, and rests because it's weary. It, it ages and starts to fall apart, you know, um, and, and the day is coming when we will be liberated from the body and our souls will, will go to whatever the Greeks uh, in particular thought. And this, this teaching and thinking also infiltrated the Christian church. We know that the Gnostics, you know, uh, a, a, a group of false teachers that Paul is wrestling with in Corinth, were also taking up that Greekified, if you will, uh, theology and kind of mixing and mingling it in with the Christian faith and teaching, in fact, that, no, there's no resurrection of the body, you know, but also we just kind of spiritualize the truly saved people uh, um, are united to heaven by their spirits and their spirits alone, not by the crass and dirty, mutable realities of the body. But that is not the Christian gospel. And by the way, you hear this today. You know, there are, there are Christians, I've, I've, I've mentioned it many times because it's something you should tune your ear toward. When, when you hear somebody sounding Gnostic, it should sound like music out of tune. It should sound like somebody just plucked a bad note on a, on a piano, you know, and you'll hear it. That the idea that, you know, in heaven will just be souls or maybe will be, you know, whatever it might be. Or I hear it a lot of times at funerals when, when people say, you know, uh, we know that our brother, whoever it is, you know, is not here. He's not in that coffin. You know, he is with, you know, he's, he's in, in heaven. And and that's true. That That is true. He is in heaven. 
if he's a believer, but he's also in the coffin. You know, I mean, the, the, the reality is the body is his. You know, the body is still his. And this is the ugliness of death, is that now we are torn apart and our souls are with the Lord and our bodies are in a coffin. You know, but but we, we don't want to undervalue the fact that the body is our body. And the teaching of the Christian faith is not that, well, when you die, you finally get liberated from these things. No, the hope of the Christian faith is that our bodies will be renewed, that our bodies will come out of the grave. Just as Jesus' body came out of the grave, so body and soul for the Christian are reunited in eternal glory, not shed, but the body was given as something good. We know that because Jesus has his physical body. Okay, so into Corinth were coming teachers that were denying this. And we know throughout this book in our study of 1 Corinthians that these guys have tended to give their ear to these false teachers. These false teachers are having a real impact on the Corinthian community. And Paul has been having to push back in all sorts of ways, challenging them not primarily to think like Greeks or like Corinthians, but to think like Christians. And so here we come in chapter 15 to that most fundamental and important truth of the Christian faith, namely the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I entitled the sermon this morning, Gospel According to the Scriptures, because this is what Paul begins with. He anchors them back to the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Good news. The, the, the Greek word, just so you can hear it, is euangelion, which you can hear you which is the, a prefix that even we use today, E-U, U means good. When you, when you speak at a funeral and you give a eulogy, you know, logi, word, right? And a eulogy is a good word. So when you stand and give a eulogy at a funeral, you are saying good words about the, the departed person, right? So E-U is good. And then angel angel message. An angel is a messenger. That's what uh, the word means. And so you, angel, we get the word evangelism from that same. We've just taken the U and made it a V. Uh, but, but that same evangelism uh, or evangelical, we believe, are those who hold to the angel, to the gospel, to the good message, the good news. And Paul says, moreover, brethren, I want to declare the good news to you, right? This, this gospel to you that I preached to you. So let's go back, if you will, to the basics, Corinthians. And let me remind you of the fundamental good news that I preached and that you believed. And so I want us to think about this gospel this morning in four ways. First, according to Paul, this gospel is essential. It's essential. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the good news, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if, and that word is key there, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
Notice that Paul says, let me go back to the basics. I preach the gospel to you, and he goes sort of their past, their present, and their future, how it's all anchored in the gospel. I preach the gospel to you, and you received it. And you stand in it, or so you say. And you will be saved because of it if you hold fast to this. It's a good reminder to us, too, because you know, we, we, the gospel, the message of the Christian faith, the truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is something that we can very easily take for granted. But, but for Paul, and again, we even thought about this in our word of exhortation today in 1 John, that here are the implications of the gospel, that God is light in him, there is no darkness. And if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth of God is not in you. But if you confess your sins, God's faithful and just to forgive you. You know, if we, we have to come back and remind ourselves to be grounded in the truth of the gospel and not to simply let the gospel, the good news, kind of float around in the background of our Christian lives. No, it is what the chain of my life must be anchored to. I must hold fast to it. That is to say, again, the gospel is not a, it's not a simply a belief in a list of beliefs that I kind of hold to. It's the solid rock on which I stand. It's a truth to be received. It's the rock on which I stand. Even now, every day, I continue to stand. And indeed, it is that by which I will be saved if, in fact, we hold fast to it. The implication is, if you do not hold fast to it, you will not be saved. Now, this doesn't throw us back. We have to be careful that we don't read more into what Paul is saying than we ought to. He's not saying, therefore, it really has to do with the sense of your grip. You know, if your grip is loose, hey, you may not make it. Don't, don't overread it. Paul's not reverting us back into some works-based salvation. But what he is saying is, you must daily wake up and hold fast to the gospel. This is not something, you know, I kind of grew up in the era where it was like easy believism, where it's like you signed a card in a church one day or you raised your hand and you walked an aisle. Okay, hey, good news, it's done. And, and you, you feel bad fighting back against that because you don't want to imply that if it was legit, it's not done. Yeah, if you really believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. And I believed that faith will never be taken from you. But, but we have to hear the words of Paul where he reminds us that the Christian life is a daily battle. We must daily put on the full armor, right? We must daily hold fast. You know, the author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, casting aside the sin which so easily entangles and wraps itself around your legs and trips you up. Casting off those things which so easily entangle, let us run the race here of the Christian life with endurance, fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, right? So the author of Hebrews is able to hold these two things together that on the one hand, you've got work to do. You've got to Cast off sin. If you don't cast off sin, it's going to wrap itself around your legs. It's going to trip you up. It's going to take you off course. If you don't fix your eyes on Christ, 
you're going to wander off course. You're going to wander astray. You have to set your eyes on him and navigate yourself toward him. As you're running this race with endurance, you're fixing your eyes on him. Yet, at the same time, he can hold that in balance with the one that you're fixing your eyes on is the one who is the author of your faith and he's the finisher of your faith. It's like Paul's words to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who wills and who does according to his purpose, right? It's God in you, both to will and to do. So, And, and I think it's very important for us, especially as Reformed Christians, that we don't, you know, fall off the, the, the road here into one ditch or another and end up in, oh, so you're saying I have to do it, this is all me, it's kind of white-knuckle it, you know, works-based salvation? No, that would be an error. On the same time, we have to be careful we don't fall off into the other side of the ditch which says, oh, it's done, it's all of God, I don't have anything to do. Paul here says, you must hold fast to the gospel. And you must not allow your eyes to wander away from this good news which was first preached to you. And there are a million things calling for your attention. Hey, look over here, look over here. From bad theology at the very root of this, that there's no resurrection, to a culture that may make Christianity seem odd and and implausible, to social pressures which make us kind of back away from believing things that are sharp and edgy according to our current culture to just the temptations of life. All of these things are beckoning for your attention and to get your eyes off of Jesus Christ. They're asking for your grip. A million things are asking for you to shake hands with them and take your grip off of Christ and no longer hold fast to him, but to reach for something else for support or encouragement. And Paul says, we must hold fast to this gospel. Or or the other option is, you believed in vain. He's willing to say to the Corinthians, "Did, did we go through all the motions of the stuff we did when I was there preaching with you? Was that all in vain? Because it's in vain if you don't hold fast to the gospel. If after I come in and talk to you and you believe it, and then some other fancy pants teachers come in and start luring you away from the gospel and you go down that road, then yes, our work was in vain. And your, for those listening, I'm air quotes, and your belief was in vain because it was never true. It was empty. It was vaporous belief. Maybe even it was emotional belief. Maybe it was cognitive belief, but it wasn't belief because you didn't hold fast. It was like it was like the the sower of the seed in that in that parable that the man goes out and he sows all this seed and some lands on the asphalt and the birds come down and pluck it away and there's nothing there. But but some some seed lands in the very thin soil and in the very thin soil, it starts to put out some roots and even begins to grow. But then the afflictions of this world come, the sun comes and just burns it up and it just doesn't have the, it doesn't have the substance, the root system. It's not drinking deeply from the the aquifer that's underneath it and it doesn't have the depth of soil for nutrients in Christ to, to sustain that kind of suffering. And so it withers up and it dies. And then there's the other seed that gets sown, but it gets sown into a a bramble of 
again, all these other things calling for the attention of the thing and, and also taking from the soil, you know, and pulling nutrients from the soil that that seed is rooting in. And the seed does begin to grow, but in time, it just gets entangled with so many things, again, that are calling its attention away and sucking life out of it that it ends up just getting choked out. And really what, and of course, there's the fourth seed, by the way, which lands in good soil and is cared for and cultivated and weeded and pruned and, and grows and bears much fruit. And that's the, that's the soil that you want to be that can receive the seed that way. But the Corinthians are in danger of being that rocky soil, of being that infested soil that, that can't sustain growth. And so we need to remember here at Affirmation the essential nature of the gospel. And though we talk about it all uh, so much, we have to be careful that the truth of the gospel does not become white noise in the background and our eyes are allowed to be distracted. So first, the gospel is essential. Secondly, it is scriptural. So now Paul's going to turn and say, remind them of the gospel that was preached. And so he's going to declare it. So let's, let's get this on the table. What is the good news? Verse 3 for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There, if, if anybody ever asks you what is the gospel, there is the gospel in its simplest and purest thing. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. Now, is there more to say? Sure there is. Right? We, can, we can throw other things around the story in there. And there are other things that ultimately have to be said. I mean, he didn't just rise. He ascended to the right hand. He's coming again. How does that gospel get to us? Right, We believe in justification by faith alone. And so there's all kinds of other secondary things that are around that. But if you want to get right down to the kernel of the gospel, the kernel of the gospel is this. Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die. He died for our sins. You know, Isaiah 53, as we've looked at, where he was numbered with the transgressors. By his stripes, we are healed. Right? It wasn't just a death. It wasn't just a martyrdom. It wasn't just a sad story. It's a glorious story because he died in, for our sins. He died with purpose. And he was buried, i.e. he was really dead. That's the point of mentioning the burial. So that the next point kind of springs out, literally, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. This is the essence of the gospel. Now, Paul makes the point right at the outset that this gospel, this good news, he says it twice. He says it with the death, and then he repeats it again with the resurrection, that this death and resurrection were according to the scriptures. Now, Paul obviously could not see this for a period of time. He even confesses in this very text that he was a persecutor of the church. Right? He, when, when people were going, when Stephen was proclaiming this, he stood by and had him stoned to death for uttering such things, that Jesus is Messiah. So Paul clearly could not see the scriptures pointing this way toward Christ. He was reading the scriptures in a way that did not go there. His interpretation of the scriptures had nothing to do with death and resurrection. Had you said this to Paul at Stephen's martyrdom, you would have been martyred. 
I, he would not have bought it. So in some sense, it takes regenerate eyes to see this in the scriptures. But once you have them, you can't not see it. And Paul, emphatically by the Lord, was actually blinded for three days so that he could see. <laughs> he needed to be blinded so that he could see. And he was, and when he was given his vision back, he could see. And he went 14 years of study after that to go prepare and rethink, read through his Bible, his Old Testament. Remember, that's all they had. Read through the Old Testament again now with new lenses by which he was thinking Christ died, buried, and resurrected. And all of a sudden, pow, 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 pow. He was seeing it everywhere in the Old Testament. And so our Old Testament reading today was, as I said, the most clear declaration of this in the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. But if we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and we won't do this, I won't extend the sermon by walking through the entire Old Testament today. But we've done it many times in this church, praise God, that we have looked at Christ in the Old Testament. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned and got caught hiding in the bushes and God removed them from the bushes and lined them up to receive their curse and they thought, this is it, it's over, we blew it. The day you eat, you will surely die. This was a really short story. And, you know, I guess that's the end of it. And from that moment, the Lord in cursing the serpent, even before he cursed Adam and Eve, before they even received their curse, the Lord cursed the serpent. And in cursing the serpent, he said, you know, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And right there is the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you will, prophesied in a, no doubt, in the moment, a very obscure, cloudy, murky way. You couldn't have worked it out from that text alone that Jesus was going to be crucified in Rome and, and be raised on the third day. But once you see the death and resurrection of Christ, you can look back at Genesis 3.15 and see it's right there. And then we can just jog our way through the entire Old Testament and watch the expansion and the clarification of that message and that truth and see how throughout the whole story of mankind and particularly in the story of Israel, God was preparing the ground for the story of the gospel and for the coming of Jesus Christ. I tell my students at Chapel Field all the time, it's like the Old Testament was like training wheels for the people of God learning to ride their bike, if you will, the bike of their faith, that is to get their balance. It was training them so that when Christ came, the training wheels get thrown away and we have the reality. That is, they could see that the very principles and truths of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were being inculcated and established through the history and the story and the teaching of Israel. Paul couldn't see it. His heart was hard. But by the grace of God, he is what he is, and he has eyes to see it. But the death of our Lord for the sins of the people, whether we see it in Genesis 3.15, whether we see it in the entire sacrificial system that was established for Israel, whether we see it in Isaiah 53, we see it nonetheless. The death, the going down into judgment and being brought out, we see in the whole story of the Exodus. We see it in the story of the exile. That is, not only in the little moments of the story, like the sacrificial system, or the bronze serpent, 
or the sacrifice of Isaac, but the substitution of the ram on Mount Moriah. Or, I mean, I, we could take a whole host of them. But not only do we see it in these little moments, we see it if we zoom back. Oh my goodness, we see it in the whole arc of the entire story of Israel, of going down into slavery and then being brought out into a new land, a promised land, being sent out of the land, out into exile in Babylon, and being restored back as the temple gets rebuilt in the land and the people dwell with the people uh, with God. So we see it in the big arcing stories, and we see it in the little moments that Paul now has the eyes to see that he was crucified for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. So it's essential and it's scriptural. And then thirdly, it's historical. That is, and this is so important for us to come to grips with, that the gospel that we hold is not a philosophy. It's not a system of doctrine. Though there is a system of doctrine that flows out of it, there's a philosophy that flows out of it and that is consistent with it. But the essence of our faith is not a philosophy. The essence of our faith is not a belief. It's not a doctrine. Though doctrines are very important. But that's not the essence of it. Notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, the gospel I taught you and then go into some philosophical rant. The gospel I declare to you, Christ died. He was buried. And he rose on the third day. Our gospel, our good news, our salvation is based not upon an idea, but upon a historical event. And this is an amazing thing. Show me the religion that anchors its entire, the substance of its entire belief on an historical event. A lot of ways, hey, it's a vulnerable thing to do as a faith. Because if that's not true, and we'll get to that here in just a second, then the whole thing's rubbish. Now, a lot of ideas come out of that, a lot of teaching, a lot of doctrine, a lot of philosophy, a lot of implications. But at the root of our faith is something historical, a man. Born of a virgin, lived among a people, walked and talked with them, healed, did miracles with them, taught his disciples, was arrested, crucified, buried in the ground, the, the, in the grave of a rich man. And on the third day, came out of that grave, met with his disciples, had breakfast with them, spent 40 days with them and ascended to the right hand of the Father from which he will come again. Like, this is historical reality that we affirm. And Paul makes the point, not only these things I'm declaring to you, Corinthians, but also he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, by 500 brethren at once, the greater part of whom are still remain. That is to say, you can go talk to them. I mean, I, this, this historical reality I'm talking about is not something, oh, and then he appeared to me in secret and now I'm declaring to you or having sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, a moment like, again, Muhammad goes out into the wilderness and, and comes back and says, yeah, I met with Allah. Well, okay, that's fine. I, I can't, how can I affirm or deny that? But, but that's the point that he's not making. You know, Joseph Smith says, oh, uh, no, is it Joseph? Who the, with Mormon? Yeah, Joseph Smith. You know, I met the angel Moroni and he gave me these golden tablets. Where are they? I don't know. They, they've gone. They're gone. Well, who saw them? No one but me. Okay, well, I don't know what to do with that. I can't, I can't affirm. How can I affirm or deny that? But that's the point that Paul is not making. It's not just, oh, and I saw him, but it was just me and you all have to believe me. 
Not that that would make it untrue. It just would be unverifiable. But he's like, no, but it, it was Peter. You can go talk to Peter. See if his story matches with mine. And the 12, go talk to any one of the other apostles. If you can find them, go talk to them. Not only that, he appeared to 500 people at once in this big gathering. Most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. You can, you can confirm what I'm saying with them if you like. Then he was seen by James. Then by all the apostles, this broader group. And then last of all, by me. I'm telling you something I've not only received, but that I have seen. Like John in our word of exhortation today. The things I declare to you, that we declare to you, the apostles, are things we have seen, we have heard, we have handled. And this we pass on to you. At the heart of the Christian faith is not an idea, though ideas are central, but rather a fact, a historical fact, a man, a birth, a life, a death, a resurrection. And so it is historical according to Paul. And by the way, I, I over my years of thinking through the, uh, the apologetics of the Christian faith, it is this fact that has really anchored me. And I, I remember because I had a particular moment. I know right where I was. I was with my brother Stephen driving to uh, the hospital to see my dad. He had been in the hospital now for a couple weeks. And my brother Stephen had flown in. We thought he was going to die at that time. Of course, he lived another five years. But I really thought we were at the end. In fact, my brother and I had just come from making, we went to a funeral home. I couldn't believe I was sitting at a funeral home talking about arrangements for my dad. Um, and by God's grace. And my dad, for the next five years, never let me forget that Stephen and I went to the funeral home. But... Um, but, but, but I remember driving back and wrestling with the faith and, hey, you know, in moments like this, you got to wrestle with whether you really believe this, you know. And one of the things that buoyed me was the Apostle Paul. Because I, I thought to myself, you know, the Apostle Paul was not an idiot. You know, and he wasn't a guy who just wanted this all to be true. And so he was hoping against hope. And so, fine, he may make up a story. The Apostle Paul was killing people because he, they said this was true. Paul did not want this to be true. And yet, something broke Paul. And on the other side of it came this eloquent writer who not only wrote truth beautifully, right? I used C.S. Lewis's, you know, lunatic liar or lord thing with Jesus in the same way to think about Paul. Like, is Paul a lunatic? Well, he does not write like a lunatic. Is he a liar? Well, I don't know. He was beaten for this, you know. Or what he says may, in fact, be true. And what else can explain for an intellectual non-believer like Paul this 180 that he has in his own life? But that, in fact, what he says may be true, that he actually met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And not just him but the risen Lord Jesus Christ, whom the others had also met and who had been telling him all along, Paul, it's true. And that 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 really, uh, it wasn't a deep existential crisis, but it was but it was in a moment where I was, I was looking for something and, and it really helped me to think through what the Lord had done in Paul's life and to try to find some, I challenge a non-believer, you come up with an alternate explanation for what happened to Paul. Finally, and we'll conclude with this, it is logical. There's a logical dimension to this. And this doesn't make it true. What Paul's about to say here does not make the resurrection of Jesus Christ true. But what Paul does want to say to his readers is, you can't be illogical. You can't, 
you can't say, well, there's no resurrection, but everything we believe is true. No, that's not it. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, then Jesus was not raised. If Jesus is not raised, let's just work through the implications of that. Then your faith is in vain. Then what you say you believe is not true. If what you believe is not true, then we're the ones who taught you and we're false witnesses. Again, this doesn't make everything I'm saying true. I just want you to hear, if you deny the foundational premise, then let me just work out the implication. There is a logic to this. The confidence that Paul has is logically rooted back in this historical event. Right? It's the historical event that makes it true. But there's a logic to then the belief that flows out of it. If we are false witnesses, in fact, then everything we have is vanity. Then it's all useless, right? In fact, Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. Because we have given ourselves, we have chosen to pick up a cross, deny ourselves, and follow this one who in fact was not crucified for our sins, who was not raised from the dead. We might as well just drop it all and go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Like, we're idiots. If we've gone down this path of self-denial in faith of something that's not true, then we of all people are most to be pitied. And there is a logic to the faith of a Christian. We are how we are as believers, running a race with endurance, doing our best to shed the sin which so easily entangles, confessing our sins, serving the least of these, the brethren of Christ, right? There's a logic to why we do this because we believe this historical event is true. If that historical event is not true, if you deny that, then everything else is just stupid. But these things are not stupid because we believe that that historical event is true. So for us, for whom, again, this is so fundamental, I'm not telling you anything new today, though rarely do I tell you something new. I'm telling you stuff you already know, but I'm calling us back to those foundational beliefs, that essential euangelion, that essential good news. And to remind you and to encourage you that that good news is good news that the Lord prepared us for throughout all of the entire Old Testament. So that what we end up with, we should say, of course, of course. It's scriptural. And it's rooted in history. Don't you doubt that. And if somebody wants to challenge your faith, get out of the world of the abstract. Go back to the historical. Not that you can't argue up here in ideas, but these ideas are silly if the historical thing is not a reality. And if the historical thing is a reality, then they've got to reckon with it. Forget, we, we're wasting our time up here talking about ideas. Either this is true or it's not. And our non-believing friends have to reckon with that. We are saying that the God-man walked out of the grave after being dead. You've got to reckon with that. Then we can talk about ideas. Either he did or he didn't. And if you say he didn't, then we got to talk through why you say that. And then finally, there's a logical reality our faith is built on this. Our faith is not in vain because it's anchored to this historical reality. May we be encouraged by that and challenged by it. Let's pray. Father, guard us from being distracted from that good news. 
with many other things that are good with a small g, but that beckon for our attention, summon us away from holding fast to the capital G good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Guard us, we pray, for we have wandering eyes and wandering hearts. We have itching ears that are looking for new things and deeper ideas and new philosophies. We pray that you would protect us from that, lest we abandon that scriptural, historical, logical truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. We thank you for the hope that it brings. We thank you that because of it, our lives are not mere vanity, but rather a new creation. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.